Before I begin this morning, I just, just want to let you know, uh, if you've ever been to a good old-fashioned Bible drill, sword drill, that's what today's going to be. Um, so there's a ton of scripture uh, that I'm going to go through today. I have not put it most of it up on the screen. As a matter of fact, I don't think I put any on the screen. Um, if at any time, whether it's today or any other week, that you want my notes, um, I have the notes that I put together um, for myself to be able to, to speak, and you are more than welcome to those at any time. And um, But I have put the, the Bible references on all the screens. And so I just wanted to, to let you know that uh, before we begin, because it's, it may be difficult to keep up with all the verses this morning. Um, if you will stand with me, and we're going to read 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 26 through 31. It says, For consider your calling, brethren, that there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong, and the base things of the world, and the despised. God has chosen the things that are not, so that he may nullify the things that are, so that no man may boast before God, but by his doing you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that just as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. Let's pray. Father, I am so excited about this message this morning. God, you have just filled my heart with joy and, and just praise and adoration this whole week because I've been able to study this, Father. And I just pray that you would that you would hide me behind your cross and just speak this same word that you've spoken to me, to your people. God, I pray that we would leave this place just exclaiming, holy, holy, holy is Lord God Almighty. Thank you, Father. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. If you've, if you've been here for any amount of time, you know that one of my favorite passages in the entire Bible is, is in Isaiah chapter 6. And every time I read that passage, I'm just enthralled with, with what's going on. I can put myself in Isaiah's place. And, and what, what happens in that, in that scenario is the king has just died. The king has been king for 50-plus years, and that was really the only king that, that Isaiah and most of the people in Israel knew. And so he has died, and now they're, they're at this hopeless state, and they're, they're thinking, what, what now? What do we do now? And... God gives Isaiah a vision of, of heaven. God literally pulls back the curtains and shows Isaiah what's actually happening right this second in, in heaven. And, and, and you've got the God the Father there and all the angels, the seraphim and the cherubim, like we read about this morning, are, are encircling the throne and just calling out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. That was happening thousands of years ago when Isaiah saw it. It's happening this very second. And it'll be happening a billion years from now when we're all there and, and, and taking part in that, in that uh, praise uh, service. And, and so every time I think about that, that, that Isaiah was able to see God in all of his glory, in all of his majesty, in all of his power, I always think about, could, could I or could you imagine being able to look directly into the very throne room of God? Can you imagine the experience that you would, that you would have in seeing God? And, and to truly be able to understand who he is. Uh, could you imagine the awe and the fear that you have when you realize, as Isaiah did, that you're a sinful person and this is a holy God? Could you, could you imagine the, uh, the overwhelming love and adoration and worship and praise that you would have when you realize that this God, who is so perfect and holy in every way, has come and died for us and, and has paid with his very own life? that we might be able to, to come to him. This morning, my goal is to be able to peel back the curtains and, and to allow you to see God in, in his fullness. And, and I hope that that's, that's, that's what, what I'm able to do. And, and that's really what I've, what I've been able to see this week as, as I'm studying through this. Because if you, if you just read this on, on face value, and I started to title this message, uh, Consider Your Calling. Uh, because that's what Paul says to do. Consider your calling. But as I, as I read through it, that's just the very beginning. And the whole point of considering your calling is 
Here's you, and, and God is somewhere in the stratosphere that we can't even recognize anymore because he's so much bigger and so much higher. His ways are so much higher than ours. And so it really becomes, even though Paul's saying, consider your calling, what that really means is, hey, you need to think about God. And you need to understand who he is. So let's break this down. I want to go verse by verse through this this morning, and, and we'll, we'll kind of unpack this. So the first thing that I ask myself is, who are we? And look with me in verse 26. He says, For consider your calling, brethren, that there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, and not many noble. This whole idea of wisdom that, that Paul is going through here, he, he's, he's explained that and he's kind of unpacked that in, in the previous you know, eight or ten verses. And, and he's talking about how the world has this wisdom and, and God has his wisdom, and the two are diametrically opposed to one another. That the world looks at God's wisdom as foolishness, and ultimately God looks at the world's wisdom as foolishness, and God is ultimately going to destroy the foolishness or the wisdom, whichever way you want to look at it, of the world. And so what Paul is saying here is he, he's specifically addressing um, the, these Corinthian believers, and he says, I want you to consider... Your calling. Now, now, why is the calling important? If you back up just a couple of verses, um, you'll, you'll see this. Let me, let me start with verse 22. He's been talking about the difference between Jews and Greeks. And in verse 22, he said, For indeed, Jews ask for signs, and Greek ask for wisdom. And he's going to explain, as we've already talked about for the last several weeks, that the signs that the Jews were looking for become stumbling blocks for them. And the wisdom that the Greeks are looking for, they've, they've termed it uh, foolishness. Or moronic. And so in verse 23, he says, But we preach Christ crucified to Jews a stumbling block and to Gentiles foolishness, but to those who are the called, not who are called, but who are the called, who are a group of people, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. And so what Paul is saying here is between the Jews and the Greeks, which is everybody, because you're either a Jew or you're not a Jew. You're either a Jew or you're a Gentile. Those are the only two options. So what he's saying is among all people, there's a select group of people that God has called, and they are the called. And so then when we get down to verse 26 in our text for today, for consider your calling, brethren. So who did God call? That's the question that we're talking about. Did he go to the people who have the PhDs? Did he go to the, to the aristocracy, to the nobility? Did he go to the smartest people? Did he go to the wealthiest people? And what Paul says is, not many were wise, not many were mighty or strong, not many were noble. So what God is doing is he's actually coming to regular folks, to me and you. And I praise God that he did, because if he was looking for somebody who's rich or who's smart, or who has power, who has nobility, I wouldn't be called. I wouldn't be part of that group. But God is looking out over the masses, and he's specifically picking those who, from the world's eyes, aren't generally very wise. Now, this is not a blanket statement. He's not saying that there are no wise people. He's not saying that there are no mighty people. He said there are not any noble people. What he says is there's not many. So most of us, most of us that make up the body of Christ are, are not wise or mighty or noble from the world's standards. And that's okay. Now, here's where I'm going to start jumping into the, the verses. Uh, I've got a list of verses here, and I want, I want to read some of these to you. In Romans chapter 3, verses 10 through 18, if you're here on Wednesday nights, this is something that we talked about two weeks ago, so you're very familiar with this. Uh, the, the question is, okay, well, if we're not wise or mighty or noble, who are we? What do we bring to the table? And in verse 10 of, of Romans chapter 3, he says, as it is written, there is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands God. There is none who seeks God. All have turned aside. Together they become useless. There's none who does good. There's not even one. Their throat is an open grave. And with their tongue they keep deceiving. The poison of asps or snakes is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their paths. And the path of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Who's Paul talking about? He's talking about everybody. There is none who are righteous. So when we consider our calling, the very first thing we have to realize and recognize is we don't bring anything to the table. This is all God. All God. Because there's absolutely nothing good that we bring to the table. In Matthew chapter 25, 
excuse me, Matthew chapter 11, I apologize. Verse 25. Here Matthew says, sorry, I'm getting the right chapter. At that time, Jesus said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and intelligent and have revealed them to infants. Yes, Father, for this way was well-pleasing in your sight. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, nor does anyone know the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son wills to reveal him. So God has intentionally hidden things from the wise, from the, from the masses, from the nobility, from the wealthy. He's intentionally done that. If, if you notice, when Jesus came, he always taught in parables. And what did, he tell the, what did he tell the disciples? To you it has been given to understand and to hear and to see, but to them it has not. It's been hidden, it's been shrouded. And then if you look over just a couple of layers, uh, chapters later in Matthew, in, verse, in chapter 18, Verses 3 and 4, Jesus said, And truly I say to you, unless you be converted and become like a child, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever then humbles himself as this child, he is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. So what's God saying? He's saying you're not going to get to heaven on your own merit. What does a child bring to the table? Nothing. If you have a brand new infant baby, they can't feed themselves. They can't control when, when and where they use the bathroom. They can't clothe themselves. If you just lay them down, they'll die. There's absolutely nothing that they bring to the table. And spiritually speaking, what Jesus is saying is, if you're going to come to me, you have to be just like that baby. You have to be so incapable of doing anything on your own that all of it belongs to me. God is the Savior of mankind. He always has been. He always will be. And so when we consider our calling, the very first thing that we have to understand is we don't bring anything to the table. And the world looks at that and says, that's foolishness. That's moronic. That makes no sense whatsoever. And God is going to use that paradox and many, many others to actually accomplish what he's trying to do. So the first thing we need to do is, is, accomplish, is in considering our calling is we need to understand who we are. The second thing we need to understand is what has God, God done? Look at verses 27 and 28. I'm, I'm sorry, 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 1, verses 27 and 28, back to our original text. It says, But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise, and God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong, and the base things of the world and the despised God has chosen, the things that are not, so that he may nullify the things that are. So there's a couple of things I want us to go through there. First of all, it said that if you, if you read that in verse 27, but God has chosen the foolish. God has chosen the weak. The base things of the world and the despised things, God has chosen. And he's chosen all these things so that he could accomplish his will. The word chosen is, is the word that means to call out or to, 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 um, to, to choose. I mean, it's just basically what it is. I, I'm going to, there's, a, there's a group of you here, and I'm going to pick you, and I'm going to pick you, and I'm going to pick you, and I'm pulling you in because I've chosen you. And, and God is doing that with people. He's doing it with things. He's doing it with groups. He's doing it with all different things. God has always chosen whatever he wants to because he's sovereign and because he can. So he's choosing the foolish things, again, we talked about this a few weeks ago. That word foolish is the word that we get the word moron from. So God is choosing the moronic things of this world. Why? So that he can shame those who think they're wise. So if you think that you've got all of your stuff together and you've got all your ducks in a row and you're perfect and you've got your PhDs and your degrees and your whatever, God is going to take the moronic things to shame you. On the, on the second hand, so he's chosen the foolish things. He's also chosen the weak things. He just said in the previous verse, not many of you were strong. Many of you were weak. God is taking the weakest vessels that he can. Why? So that he can pour his power into it, so that he can change the world, so that he receives all the glory. You see, if, if I'm an excellent speaker, if I'm an excellent theologian, if I'm excellent in every way, and, and I can stand up here and I can just speak to the masses and I can do all the stuff and grow the church and everything happens because of me, then I have the ability to stand up for God and say, God, 
Look what I've done. Look how good I am. That's not what God's doing. God's taking the weakest vessels. Think about Moses. He took Moses. Moses stuttered. He couldn't even speak properly. And God shows Moses to be one of the most powerful people in the entire um, Bible, in the entire Old Testament story. He's the one who brought out the law. He's the one that gave us five books of the Bible. Think about, think about uh, Paul. Paul was a murderer. Paul was the one who stood by as Stephen was being stoned to death for the gospel. And he took that man and ended up spreading the gospel all over the known world and wrote two-thirds of the New Testament through that man. We could go person after person after person after person all through Scripture and, and show examples of how David, he was, he was an adulterer, he was a murderer. Uh, I mean, I could just go on and on and on with all the different names. God takes these weak, frail, broken people and uses them for his glory. That's what he's always done. The third thing it says, he, he chose the base things. I, I didn't know what base meant, so I looked it up. It, it means ignoble. It means cowardly. It, it literally, the word means you don't have a family or you don't have a good family. And so what he's saying is he chose the people who were orphans and who were cowards and who nobody would want to be around you. No one is around you because you don't have a family. He, he's chosen those kind of people and, and despised things, things that nobody wants to be around and things that are not, and we're going to talk about that in just a second, things that are not, so that they can show what he is. Because he is the one who changes everything. He is the one who has the power to do those kind of things. So now, if you, if you want to flip over with me uh, to James chapter 2, here's the verses that go along with these. In James chapter 2, uh, verse 5, James is talking here, and James says, Listen, my beloved brethren, did not God choose the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom and with, uh, and which he promised to those who love him? So James is, is being very specific that, that God is choosing people who, in, who, who do not fit the mold. They're not the ones that you would want to pick. They're not the ones that... That, that everyone would say, I need this person on my team. I need this person in my church. That's not who God's picking. That's not who God's choosing. He's choosing the poor and, and the wretched and the despised and the weak and the foolish so that his glory can be manifest. And, and probably the best example of, of this that I can find in scriptures in Matthew chapter 22, Jesus is, is teaching a parable here. And I'm going to read this to you. It's, it's verses 1 through 14. It says, Jesus spoke to them again in parables saying, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son. Now, who is he talking about? Who's the king? God the Father. Who's the son? Jesus. Who's going to be at this wedding feast? All the believers. We talk, it talks about that at length in the book of Revelation. And he sent out his slaves to call those who had been invited to the wedding feast, and they were unwilling to come. Again, he sent out his slaves, saying, Tell those who have been invited, behold, I have prepared my dinner, my oxen, and my fattened livestock are all butchered, and everything's ready. Come to the wedding feast. But they paid no attention and went their way, one to his own farm, another to his business, and the rest seized the slaves and mistreated them and killed them. But the king was enraged, and he sent his armies and destroyed those murderers and set their city on fire. Then he said to his slaves, The, re the wedding is ready, but those who were invited were not worthy. Go, therefore, to the main highways, and as many as you find there, invite to the wedding feast. Those slaves went out into the streets and gathered together all they found, both evil and good. And the wedding hall was filled with dinner guests. You see what God's doing? God is saying, I'm going to make this available to everybody. And those who should come, those who, who are the ones with the knowledge, those are the ones who have the nobility, those who have the wealth and the... And the prestige and the upbringing and all the things that you would inspect, expect to come, they're like, nah, I'm busy. I got to go back and take care of my farm. I got to go back and take care of my business. I got to go take care of my things because I am important. And so what God does is he says, okay, then I'm going to just open it up to everybody. The slaves and the poor and the famished and the homeless, all those are welcome in. Aren't you glad that God is that good? Aren't you glad that God says whosoever can come in? That's who our God is.
So when we consider our calling, there's two things we need to do. First of all, we need to know who we are. And there's, there's nothing in us that we can bring to the table. I'm not saying that we're horrible people. That's, please don't misunderstand what I'm saying. I'm saying from a spiritual standpoint, there's nothing that you bring. God can't say, I'm going to take what you've done and I'm going to add to it and therefore you're going to be saved. There is nothing that you can add to it. Nothing. And so the question, the, the, the question that we should ask ourselves is, why has God saved us? Why, why do we even need to be saved? And why, why has God made this available to us? And here's where we can clearly see the, 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 the picture of God. Here's where we can clearly pull back the curtains and understand this. And, and I want you to understand this. God is so multifaceted, and God is so deep, and, and so endless, that you and I will never be able to get to a full understanding of who he is. And there are many, 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 many reasons that God has saved us. But here in this passage, two of them are given. And the first one is so that he may nullify the things which are. And I want to explain to you what that means. There's two examples I've got that I want to share with you this morning about that. The things that are, and this is where I really started getting excited when I was studying through this. There's things in this world that are not right. You agree with me? Do you like this economy like this? Do you like the, the sin that's just rampant? Do you like the fact that those who are criminals tend to get everything they want and those of us who are struggling day to day are just, just trying to get by? That is not the way it's supposed to be. And, and the main th one of the main things that he, that he talks about in here is that he is going to nullify, which means to abolish or to destroy the things which currently are. And let me give you a couple of examples of that. The first one is Satan is currently the ruler of this world. Did you know that? Satan rules this world. He owns this world. He controls this world. He, he does anything he wants to do within parameters. Obviously, God has to give him permission. But Satan is the ruler of this world. And there's a couple of examples I want to show you. And I'm not going to read these verses. But in John chapter 12, verse 31, in John chapter 14, verse 30, and in John chapter 16, verse 11, in all three of those passages, Jesus is talking, and he calls Satan the ruler of this world. Now, he says some bad things about him and that, he's, that his, his rule is not going to last very long. But currently, Satan is the ruler of this world. To, to prove that to you, I want you to look at Matthew chapter 4, uh, verses 8 and 9. In this passage, Jesus is, is being tempted. This is the temptation of Christ. And Jesus is being tempted by Satan. And in verse 8, it says, Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And listen to what Satan said to him. And he said to him, all these things I will give to you if you will fall down and worship me. How's Satan going to give him something that he didn't control? How's Satan going to give him something that he didn't own? And so what's happening here is Satan says, if, you will if we can just skip to the end of the line, what Satan's ultimate goal has always been is to be superior to God. And he says, God, in the form of Jesus, if you will fall down and worship me, if we can get to where I'm trying to get, then I'll give you anything that you want. I'll give you this planet. I'll give you control over the nations. I'll do all this stuff. And, and so what's happening here is Satan currently controls this world. But the reason, one of the reasons that God saves us is because he's turning this thing around. He's taking it back. You see, when Adam and Eve sinned in the Garden of Eden, just before that had happened, God was talking to them, and, and he says, I want you to be fruitful and multiply and have dominion over the planet. In other words, this planet is yours. I'm giving it to you. I want you to control it. I want you to reign over it. I want you to do everything that I'm telling you to do in this planet. And then they sinned. And what happened? Ownership and control went from mankind to Satan. Here's what God is doing. He's saving us to put us back in that same relationship with him, that, that personal face-to-face -face relationship, that saved relationship that Adam and Eve experienced in the Garden of Eden when they didn't have to be ashamed, when they didn't have to cover themselves, when, they, when there was no sin in their life. So when God saves us, he's putting us back to where we were in the Garden of Eden. And essentially what he's doing is he's taking back possession of what he rightfully owns. And he's going to give it control of it back to us. If we read in the book of Revelation, we see that Jesus is going to come back and he's going to, with an iron fist, destroy all of his enemies and rule and reign in this world for a thousand years. 
He's going to take it back. And he's already started the process. He started it 2,000 years ago with us. And so God is fixing that. Jesus is specifically fixing that. The second thing that, that talks about nullifying the things which are is if you look in Romans chapter 4. Let me show you this. In Romans chapter 4, the people, all the people, are spiritually dead. Now, what does dead people do? They rot, right? That's all they can do. They don't do anything. What God is doing here is he's taking those who are spiritually dead and he's bringing them back to life. Look at the end of Romans chapter 4, verse 17. It's, uh, I'm going to start at the beginning. He's talking about Abraham here. He says, as it is written, a father to many nations have I made you in the presence of him who believed. And here's where I want you to see this. Even God who gives life to the dead and calls into being that which, he, which does not exist. Folks, if that doesn't get you excited, something's wrong. God has always called into being that which does not exist. The fact that I'm standing on this stage right now is because God called this thing into being that did not exist. The fact that you're sitting in those chairs right now, that you have clothes on, that you're breathing oxygen, is because God has always called into being those things which did not exist. And the cool thing is, as magnificent as this universe is, he's doing it in us spiritually, not physically. He's doing it spiritually in us. He's calling to life those things that are dead. That's who our God is. Peel back that curtain and see how powerful he is. You see how omnipotent he is, how omniscient he is. He's the creator and sustainer of everything physical, but also of everything spiritual. That's our God. That's why he's saving us, because he is, he's currently trying in the process of nullifying the things which currently are. And the cool thing is you and I get to participate in that. We, got, we talked about this in Sunday school. We've got to get outside of these four walls. We've got to start doing some evangelism and some missions and, and, and knocking on doors and visitation and writing letters and picking up phone and making phone calls. That's what we have to do. Why? Because when we do that, we get to participate with God as he's calling into being that which does not exist. Is that not exciting? That's who our God is. That's who he is, folks. We need to, to, to learn to, to enjoy him and to love him. Look with me at Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 9. In, in Ephesians chapter 2, Paul's talking, this is a very famous, familiar verse that I'm sure we're familiar with. He says in verse 1, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked, according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Do you understand everything he just said? You were dead, but you were still walking. How were you walking? You were walking in the spirit of the one, of the, son, the one who's in control of the sons of disobedience. Who's that? It's Satan. Satan is alive and well. He's ruling and reigning on this planet. And before we were saved, we were dead in our trespasses and sins, and we were doing everything he wanted us to. Everything. But now look at verse 3. Among them, those group of people, we too all formerly lived in the lust of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and we're by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. But God, but God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he calls, with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the ages to come he might show the surpassing riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It's a gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. Church, this is what God is doing. He's taking a bunch of moronic, ignoble, cowardly people, that's us, who bring nothing to the table, and he looks down at us and he says, I love you and I'm going to save you and I'm going to bring you into my family. I'm going to sit you in heavenly places and I'm going to give you everything that my son has inherited. Everything. Is that not amazing? 
That's who the Lord is. Now, the second thing we need to understand, the two reasons that God saved us that's listed here. One is so that he can abolish and nullify the things which are. The second reason is so that no flesh may boast before God. See, I've already said this a few times. If I had anything that I could bring to the table, that I say, God, here's what I can bring. You just add to it, then it's me and God. Folks, that's not the way it is. There's nothing righteous in this old boy. And there's nothing righteous in any of you. We have nothing. I just read Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. For by grace you have been saved. Grace is something we don't deserve. It's God's unmerited favor. For by grace you have been saved through faith. That not of yourselves. It's the gift of God. Not as a result of works so that no one can boast. The final answer to our salvation is when we get to heaven, every single one of us will sit, will bow before that throne, and we'll say, God, you are holy, 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 because I don't deserve to be here. I deserve to be on that wide road in hell with everybody else. That's what I deserve. And if you, if you look in your heart, you know that you're a sinner. You know that's what you deserve. You do. You know it. But we're going to be able to stand before God one day and say, thank you, Lord, that you've done all this for us. It has nothing to do with me. It's only because of your grace that I'm here. And, and I'm going to tell you right now, if this morning you're not a believer, you can be. Because his grace is more than sufficient for you. It's more than sufficient. And then also in Romans chapter 3, verses 27 and 28. Look at this one quickly with me. It says, where then is boasting? It is excluded. But what kind, by what kind of law? Of works? No, but by a law of faith. For we maintain that a man is justified apart from works of the law. Do you understand what Paul's saying? There is not a single thing that you can do to get yourself saved. When you come to God, he doesn't say, okay, if you'll clean this up, if you'll quit doing this, if you'll start doing this, if you'll quit doing this, I want you to stop that, I want you to quit looking at this, I want you to quit smoking that, quit drinking, none of that stuff. There's not a single thing, nothing that you can do that will get you one inch closer to God. God looks at you and he says, you're a failure just like the rest of them. Let me just go back and look in, look in chapter, uh, Romans chapter 3 verse 10. There's none righteous. If you stop smoking, if you stop drinking, if you stop chasing women, if you stop watching things and saying things and doing things, you're still not righteous. You're still not. There's not even one of us that are. Furthermore, there's none who understands. Furthermore, there's none who seeks God. So if you're trying to clean yourself up so that you can come to God, God says, you're not seeking me. You're seeking your own God uh, excuse me, man-made religion. That's what you're seeking. You're not seeking something that's biblical. You're seeking something that you've made up in your own mind. Nobody is going to be able to boast before God. We're all going to stand there just like, just like Isaiah in chapter 6. Woe is me, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among the people of unclean lips. There is nothing righteous in me. That's where we're going to be. And God's going to say, I know, and I still love you, and I still want you, and I've still chosen you, and I've still died for you. I've still forgiven you. He's going to do it all. He has done it all. He's done every single thing. So, so what's the outcome for us? And this is the coolest thing. Go back to, with me to, to 1 Corinthians. And I told you, I apologize. We're bouncing all over today. But go back to 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 1 again. And I looked this verse up and up and up, and I've looked at different translations. And, and I think the King James is probably the closest um, to, to what the original language says. But we have to understand this, because I, every time I read this, I just fly right past it. But when you dig down into this, it's so powerful. Look at verse 30. But by his, I'm looking at New American Standard. But by his doing, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us, and they list all the things. Um, somebody's got King James. What does it say? Say, out of him, of him. Okay, same thing. Here's what it's saying. I want you to understand this. We are out of Christ. 
The New American Standard phrases it, but by his doing, you're in Christ. There's the same thing. Understand what he's saying. He's saying that the reason that God has saved you, the, uh, the way that God has saved you, the outcome for the fact that God has saved you is that you came out of him. It's, it's his works that have, that have justified you. It is his crucifixion that has paid the penalty for your sin. It is his uh, being, being, uh, being punished for our sins that, that has paid the price. It is his resurrection that brings us life. It's all out of him. We come out of him, and, and we're, um, that, that's where we're at. It can't be out of us. It has to be out of God. But the second part of that sentence is, not only is it, is it out of him, not only is it, is it the fact that it's his doing, his work, but we're in Christ Jesus. Do you understand what that means? To be in Christ Jesus is the idea of baptism. It's the idea of immersion. It's the idea that when I go into him, you can't see me anymore. Think, think of, think of a, a murky lake, and, and you go out and someone dives down into that lake. You can't see the person anymore. They're still there. They're still swimming and, and moving around and doing all the things that they're supposed to be doing. But you can't see them anymore. Why? Because they're in the lake. That's exactly what baptism is. We're, we're, and I'm not talking about the physical act that we, that we see. What I'm talking about is the word baptize, which means to immerse. And what Paul is saying here is, you are out of, let me go back, is by his doing or out of Christ, you are in Christ Jesus. That makes all the difference in the world. Okay, Because of the fact that I am in him, it is him who is living in and through me. It is I am baptized into his life. So all the good stuff that he did, the following the law and obeying the Ten Commandments and doing everything that Jesus did, because I'm in him, I get the benefit of all that. I am also in his crucifixion. Scripture says we've been crucified with Christ. So the fact that he paid the penalty and the price for my sin, I'm in him. So I get all the benefit of that. I'm in his resurrection. So as he was raised to newness of life, so are we supposed to be. So when I walk out and I do things and I say things, I'm supposed to be doing them as if Christ is living in me. So we are out of him, but we're also in Christ. Church, that is a magnificent statement. It's unbelievably good. When the world looks at us, they shouldn't see me because I'm baptized. I'm immersed into Christ. What they should see is Jesus Christ. The words I say, are they the words that he would say? Are the actions that I do, are they his actions? Are the thoughts that I'm thinking, are they his thoughts? Are you in Christ? Because that's the only way to live, folks. That's the only way that we can possibly live this Christian life. Now, he goes on from there, and he says, but by his doing, so everything that he did, we're in Christ, we're in him. And then it says, he became to us three things. He became to us wisdom, righteousness, and sanctification. Folks, this is so cool, okay? He, he became to us the wisdom of God. So remember the very first verse that we talked about. Go back to verse 26. For considering your, breath, your calling, brethren, that there were not many of you who were wise according to the flesh. So God is taking a bunch of people who on the world's standard don't measure up for the most part. Now there's some exceptions, but for the most part, believers are not measuring up to where the world says you're a wise person, you're an intelligent person. That's why they say that we're, we're, we're using religion and Christianity is a crutch because we just can't get there any other way, so we have to have Christianity. And what, what this says is because we're out of God, because we, because we are here because of the things that he's working in our life, and because we're immersed or baptized into him, he has become to us, not the world's wisdom, the wisdom of God. So now this supernatural Wisdom that will never, ever end is a righteousness that we have. So what we do is we exchange our worldly foolishness 
our worldly wisdom for a wisdom that's never going to pass away, that's never going to end, that's never going to continue to expand. And Jesus living in and through us has produced this wisdom in us. So he's taken a bunch of foolish, ignoble, cowardly people, and he's become in us the wisdom of God. It's because we're in him and because he is working things out in us. And he gives us supernatural wisdom. The second thing he gives us is righteousness. He has become in us righteousness. Well, we've already talked about this many, many times. Romans 3 says there's none righteous, no, not one. This is not my righteousness. This is not your righteousness. This is his righteousness that he has become in us. In Romans chapter 3, well, I just said that. There's none righteous, no, not one. And in Isaiah 64, 6, it says that all of our righteousness, if we pile it up in a heap, is filthy rags before God. So we bring nothing to the table, but we get all of his righteousness. When God looks at me, he doesn't see the sinner that I am. He doesn't see the failure that I am. He doesn't see the weak person that I am. He doesn't see the, the person of lowly birth that I am. Who does he see? He sees his son. He sees the king of kings, the lord of lords, the, the lamb of God. That's who he sees when he sees me and when he sees you. That's what God is doing in our lives. And the most important one that he's doing, I think, is, is sanctification. And this is so cool. Flip over with me to Ephesians chapter 5 for just a moment. In Ephesians chapter 5, verses 25 through 27, Paul says, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her. He died for her. Guys, that's the way you're supposed to be treating your wives. You're supposed to be willing to die for them. And, and, it's, and I can tell you this for right now. It's real easy to say I'll be willing if somebody broke in my house at 3 o'clock in the morning to take a bullet for Cindy. It's much more difficult to say, am I going to die for her every single second of every single day? That's what Jesus did. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her. Why? So that he might sanctify her. That word means to be made holy. Jesus loved us and gave himself for us so that he could make us holy. I want to tell you this. There's so many folks in, in the Christian world right now that say, all you got to do is walk an aisle and pray a prayer, and then you just go your merry way. You live like hell every second of every day, and when you die, God's going to take you to heaven. That is not what Scripture says. God said that Jesus died for his church so that he could make it holy. And if you're not being made more and more and more holy every day, then you're not part of his church. And it's not because of anything you've done. Jesus died Jesus came, Jesus gave himself up so that he could sanctify her. He is doing the work in us. He became sanctification in us. He's working in you. If you're one of his children, he is working with you. And if you walk away, he'll tan your hide. He is going to bring you back like a loving dad would do. Let me finish this first before I lose my... Thoughts here. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her, how? By the washing of water with the word. So that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. Folks, God is working in his church to make us holy. He has become that in us. He has saved us because he's changing what is into what is not. He saved us because he is turning things back the way that they're supposed to be. And, you know, we get so hung up on, well, God, God saved me because he loves me. Yeah, that's true. But God saved you because he's got a much bigger plan enormously bigger plan than, than you and me, okay? He's not just saving people. He's transforming the universe back to where he designed it to be. That's the vision of God that we need to see. We need to see a God that's not sitting up there wringing his hands, oh, Johnny and Susie, they're just, they're just going off the rails and I don't know what to do. That's not God. 
God's saying, I'm working out every single thing, every event, every word, every thought. I'm working it all for your good if you love me and if you're called according to my purposes. And I've saved you. I've chosen you. I've called you out. I've made you into the body of Christ. And I have become for you that wisdom that you didn't have. I'm going to let you exchange that worldly wisdom that's going away into something that will never tarnish. And then I'm giving you my righteousness so that when the Father sees you, he sees me. And then for the rest of your life, I'm going to constantly be working out this sanctification in you so that you get closer and closer and closer and closer to God. And then the last thing is redemption. We've got a taste of redemption right now. We have just a, just a spot of it. Redemption simply means that God bought us back. We belong to Satan. We belong to the enemy. We were by nature, said in, in, uh, that we just read a few minutes ago, children of wrath. But now God has redeemed us. He's done for you what you couldn't do for yourself. And he's bought you back. And as we go through this process of sanctification and we get more and more and more of this sin out of our lives, we feel more and more and more of the redemption that God is giving us. And one day, every one of us is either going to die or we're going to be raptured out of here. In whichever scenario, our redemption draweth nigh. That's what Scripture says. So what is our response? And I'll close with this. Verse 31. Let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. Why? Because you don't have anything good in you. But he's got everything good in him. Everything. Everything. God took him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God, that we might become everything he designed for Adam and Eve when they messed it up. God took his own son and crucified him. God's taking the foolishness of preaching and missions and evangelism and all the things that we do to shame the wisdom of the world. God's taking back his creation. He's, he's taking it back from Satan, and one day he's going to bind him, and he's going to be gone forever. I want to read one final thing, and then we're going to close. In Revelation chapter 5, don't turn here with me, just, just listen. In, in Revelation chapter 5, I'm going to read this whole chapter, but it's, it's not lengthy. It's a, this is when, when John has just been taken up into heaven, and he can see what's going on there. He says, I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a book written inside and on the back, sealed up with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the book and to break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the book or to look into it. Then I began to weep greatly because there was no one found worthy to open the book or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, Stop weeping. Behold, the lion that's from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has overcome. So as to open the book and its seven seals. Folks, this is going to happen one day. There's going to be silence and there's going to be weeping in heaven because they're thinking no one is going to be able to open this book. No one is going to be able to wrap this thing up. No one is going to be able to bring it back. And then they're going to say, Behold, the lion, the lion of the tribe of Judah, Jesus Christ himself, verse 6, and I saw between the throne with the four living creatures and the elders a lamb standing, that's Jesus, as if he were slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God, sent out into all the earth. And he came and took the book out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. And when he had taken the book, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each one holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints, and they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to open the book and to break its seals, for you were slain and purchased for God with your blood men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. You've done it. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to our God, and they will reign upon the earth. Then I looked and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne and the living creatures and the elders, and the number of them was myriads upon myriads and thousands upon thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And every created thing which is in the heaven and on the earth and under the earth, 
Where is that? Everything in heaven, everything on the earth, everything in hell, everything in the ocean, everything. Acts 4 says, every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess that Jesus is Lord. So everything said to him, to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and dominion forever and ever. And the four living creatures kept saying, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. Church, this is where we need to be. We need to have this vision of God that he is about his work. He's not handicapped. He's not worrying. He's not fretting. He is doing every single thing that he wants to have done. And you and I are part of that. He is taking us from, from a group of, of people who, who don't deserve anything, even in the world's eyes don't deserve anything, and he's making us into the inheritors, the children of God. That's our God. If you're here this morning and you don't understand that, if you've never come to Christ and you've said, I, I have nothing to bring you but my sin, if, you're, if, you're, if you've ever been there, if that's where you're at right now, you need to come today. You need to grab hold of him and say, Jesus, I bring nothing, but you bring it all. So please save me. He will. He is, he is worthy. He is the lion of the tribe of Judah. Let's pray. And if I, if I get our, our musicians to come forward. Father, I am so thankful for this message this morning. God, I am so thankful that you're worthy we're not Lord you are everything that we need you are our breath you are our heartbeat you are everything Lord and God I pray this morning if there's anyone here who still is lost in their sin God please save them today please bring them to yourself before it is forever too late I thank you Lord for St. Christ's name I pray amen stand with me if you will we're going to sing. There's some of you here this morning that need to be saved, that need to understand the fullness of what this means. Today is a day of salvation. Jesus has done everything that you possibly need to have done. You just need to, to accept him, to repent of your sins, to claim him as your sovereign Lord. And there's others of you who need to join this church. You've been coming for a long, long time, and we want you to be part of us. We want you in the family. Let's sing.